John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 747.PR0425, certificate number 27012, Magic Eye. Yeah, it's 3D art. Computers generate them. Big computers. Yes, I've heard about these. How do they work? Well, you blur your eyes like you're staring straight through the picture, and you keep your eyes unfocused. And then... Oh, oh, oh. Yeah! You, I'm John giving you Roderick. Ma- I'm giving you the magic eye right now. Is that the opposite of the wink, evil eye? Wink, wink. Some, some um, Italian Nona is giving me the magic eye, which yeah. means come back to my <laughs> pensione. That's right. Come on to my house. <laughs> uh, you, John Roderick, uh, got a uh, virtual reality headset for Christmas. I did. Uh, well, yes. I got a- uh, one, one of these of newfangled- The newfangled ones. And I sit in the center of the room, clear clear all the uh, Barbie houses out of the center of the room, and I do my moves, but I haven't, I'm not a gamer, and so a lot of the stuff for this VR comes from gamer culture. Do you think you are uh, just, you have not been made a gamer by the culture, or is there something inherently about you, your soul, that is not a gamer soul? I think what happened was, what had happened was... I did not have an Atari 2600 in 1978. Because your parents didn't love you as much as mine did. That's right. And uh, Peter and Chad, who lived across the street from me, uh, two brothers, had a 2600. And I would go over there and play it. But like any kid with a 2600, I could not just do what I wanted. I was invited in. I could be, I was allowed to play, but then I had to go and I couldn't. You know, I wasn't in charge of what we did next. And if there's two kids next door, there's only two joysticks, so right. you're not going to play every game. Yeah, there was always somebody leaning over my shoulder. Uh, and so then by 1980, when I, when the arcades happened, I didn't have enough quarters. The, these kids that got good at Defender. Where did these kids get all the quarters how, to this day? How many quarters would that cost? You know, so many quarters. And we had an arcade up at the corner that was in the... That was um, like half of the Tasty Freeze turned into an arcade, as I think happened to Because we used to go to that Tasty Freeze in the 70s, and there wasn't anything in there, not even a pinball game. To suck on chili dogs. Yeah, we did. That was, well, you know, I mean. It, We're like, when will video games get invented? This chili dog is getting super moist. Was, you know, John Cougar was a documentarian, right? <laughs> is there a sequel that, song where he, starts, where he starts playing uh, Galaga? <laughs> Sucking on Galaga <laughs> inside the Tasty Freeze. 
so I would go to the Tasty Freeze every day after school and watch the kids play Defender. Uh, and I, and you could see that some of them were truly gifted, but you know, I had a certain number of quarters. Some of them were, I was saving for a soft serve ice cream cone. Like that's the choice, I guess. Which, which do you want more? The soft serve ice cream cone or to be better at Defender than you are now? They're both ephemeral in a way, yes. but they both leave something with you. And what, what the soft serve left with me was 15 extra pounds that I've been carrying my whole life. But I can't, I guess. And you suck at Zaxxon. <laughs> I was actually pretty good at Zaxxon. But so I, so my, I never, ha- I never associated gaming with, oh, well then to a cherry on top, my dad bought me an Intellivision. I was always jealous of the Intellivision kids. They seemed like the, 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 uh, knowledgeable elite with, with better graphics. Right. That was the, I mean, it was the Betamax of video games. It was supposedly way better, but the Intellivision little disc controller, mm. if you, if you got really serious about it, it would, your thumb would bleed. Oh, you I know, didn't know. It, it was not as ergonomic as the 2600 joystick. To this day, you could probably go, th- you just walk along a, a bank and look at the handrail and see who had an Intellivision as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> just who's got the, the telltale thumb. But by the time Nintendo came out, and I think this is an age gap thing between you and me, because you were still a kid. Yeah, I barely remember a pre-Atari era. Right. Uh, you were still a kid, and Nite- when Nintendo came out, you were a kid. Yeah, aging out of it, but yes. And when Nintendo came out, I was already, um, it, it would have felt like, I think if I, was a, if I was a diehard gamer already, Nintendo I would have been excited about. But Nintendo felt like maybe I would be stepping back into childhood a little bit. Yeah. Or <clears throat> it was definitely a thing that your pot dealer had. And I was struggling mightily at age 19 not to become a pot dealer. So anyway, no, I never got in. I never, I never got in. Who were those kids that had all the quarters? Their, their parents didn't want them around the house. But I mean, a roll of quarters, I mean, $10? I know. $10 was a fortune in 1981. It was to me. I don't know if I was on a different economy in my low allowance household, but. Because you had to get good, right? You couldn't just, I mean, I don't know. Maybe there were some kids that just walked in and I understood guess if, it instantly. If it's an 80s latchkey childhood where. You're going to have to pay the neighbor lady 10 bucks anyway. Just give 10 bucks to the kid and, you know, come home from the arcade at dinner time. He's got his goodie comb in his back pocket, his baseball hat on <laughs> sideways. <laughs> He's got a roll of quarters down at the Tasty Freeze. So you are o- uh, Oculus skeptical? Your your VR reality life didn't did, – was it eye-popping at first? Oh, I mean, I love the – I love it. I love being in that environment. Um, I just – there's not enough content that I understand. It's like an Intellivision. <laughs> yeah. I, this seems great, but uh, why don't they have Pac-Man for this? <laughs> I don't want to sit passively and just fly over Iceland. Oh, I kind of do. I mean, I'm not I'm not quite that much of a grandma. Like, oh, put it on and just be in a new environment. And I'm not, I'm just, I, well, I think the big part is I never got into killing zombies. Like yeah. Being in an environment and you're just surrounded by zombies and you're killing them. Never, never got in. My daughter is playing currently playing Minecraft obsessively, but on, like on whatever the competitive game mode is called, you know, where you kill each other. She wants to build a house and I'm like, well, just build the house. And she's like, well, I can't, I don't have enough of this. I have to go kill more of these just to get the, this, and then I can build the doors I want in my house. And I'm like, just switch to what dumb Lego mode or whatever it's called. And she just thinks that's too easy. She needs the, um, she needs the uh, adversity in her life. Did you ever play Sims? Uh, Sims was something where I'm a little bit on the bubble of like too, I was a little too old when they came out. The very first Sims game, I think we might've had on our Apple two or maybe our 
Atari ST or you know was it that was it like an Amiga era game? And I and I that game did kind of mystify me. Why am I sitting watching this happen? Like we have we have TV. Like there's going to be if if I watch um you know if I put on Perfect Strangers right now, there's going to be a big a big laugh every. every uh, you just got a big laugh right every there. eight to fifteen seconds because Balky's <laughs> going to do something silly, and like my Sims are not going to do anything silly. Right. So that kind of passive entertainment, I was as a TV raised kid, I was very skeptical of. I don't understand Minecraft as a phenomenon just because watching it, it just seems like you're playing with Legos. I mean, even Mist has better graphics. <laughs> so what is the? I mean. Like, go play with Legos. Is it the interactive element of it that other people get to walk through your Lego house? Or? I think it's for some, yeah. Um, uh, for Honestly, there's just some appeal to the fact that it's happening in a virtual world. Like, yeah, Legos yeah. sit on the carpet, which is cool in a tactile way, but it's also kind of boring because, you know, everything sits on a carpet. <sighs> Only my Minecraft house is in my Minecraft island. And there's yeah. something, and I, I had the same experience when I've never had one of these VR headsets, but I did the thing where you put your phone in the Google cardboard thing. Yeah. Did you ever do that? No. Uh, it seems like the, it came, came with the times. You could punch out, not with the times, but with the New York times. Yeah. I, I saw It also them. came with the times. <laughs> it's with the times. It makes a little box for your head. And if you put your phone in, in such a way that your left eye only sees the left side of your phone screen and your right eye only sees the right eye of your phone screen. And then there would be an app that would be like, now you're on Mars. Now you're at Niagara Falls. Now you're on a roller coaster. It's just like one of these 50s Cinerama movies. Yeah. Um, and and it was kind of it was kind of eye popping that you could just do this with cardboard and the tech you already had. Um, we're something about our brain makes us suckers for things happening in three dimensions. I I um I think part of my problem with it is that I am easily overwhelmed and super happy to do boring things. Not, not quite like not fly over Iceland boring, but that, that I, I want to interact a little bit more, but like there's a game that I was trying out where you are throwing Frisbees, but it's a game where you're also in a, in a weightless environment and you're throwing Frisbees as a form of combat. You're doing Ender's game, basically. They're, they're training you to take on the intergalactic empire of, of Zerg. Right. And so the training video where it's like, okay, we're going to teach you how to throw a Frisbee in this environment. I was so excited. You know, like throw a Frisbee through a hoop. I love to do that in a park. <laughs> and now I can do it here in this virtual reality. But introducing the element that I was also weightless, I was like, okay, I'm throwing a Frisbee through a hoop. Also, I'm a little seasick. Also, I keep floating over here. Like, it's 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 hard. If I'm weightless, will Zara clothes fit me now? Well, oh, Zara? <laughs> Zara clothes wouldn't fit me. I I think Zara clothes... Not even in to, zero G? I think you're supposed to put Zara clothes on and then hit yourself with a hairdryer so that they <laughs> kind of shrink to you. But, but realizing that this was just the training video and that I was then supposed to enter into a game... Uh, where other people were going to, I was just like, no, I just want to do the one, I want to do the one thing. I want to sit here and cast my fly fishing rod and fish for virtual trout. One thing that will keep me forever from being a gamer is now that it's just a multiplayer thing where um, 10 year olds just scream the N word at you. You know, yeah, that's, that's, that's not the stressful addict. That's why I quit my office job. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have 10 year olds screaming, screaming racial slurs at me? It was the worst. In your office. Like, job. why do I work at Mel Gibson's uh, uh, sweatshop? 
Um, but I but I really aspire to. I think VR is the and and AR. I think they are the future. Augmented reality. Yeah, bits of VR that overlap. I believe AR is. I mean, I just see so much potential for it in the same way that you and I saw so much potential for the internet 20 years ago. <laughs> and Betamax. Um, just imagining like what it could be. I keep waiting for it. I keep waiting for Google Glass to actually be a thing that's that's not stupid looking. And it keeps being tantalizingly out of reach. And I feel the same, VR still just feels like, oh, it's almost a thing. Maybe it'll just be confusing when we don't know what's real or not. That'll be the thing that actually, I mean, if, if even, if even just being able to talk to people without seeing their faces kind of, kind of broke everybody's Mm. sense of social boundaries and and grace, imagine what it's going to do when you're actually seeing things in real life and you don't know what they look like, you know, like if your, your brain starts to distrust whether this is, this is really a thing or, or not, or a construct. I've been, I've thought about this a lot, right? The, the future of AR is that you can go. Um, make yourself into your own avatar. Yeah. And then depending on how much you pay, the people that are also looking at you in AR are either going to see your super tricked out self. It's just like in real life, all the very attractive people are also wealthy. Yeah. And they're going to look amazing. And when you take your VR headset off, you're like, Ugh. <laughs> but you know, no one will, right? Everybody's like, Oh, look at me. I'm a kitty cat. And you can really be your best furry self. Uh, and then th- then there's going to be the rest of us that are just invisible. Foundational to all this is the idea that somehow seeing things in three dimensions is better than seeing them in two. The, Do you think that's true? Uh, it appears to be. I mean, it's it's what's what's led. It's put us, it's put us on top of the food chain, John. Let's be let's be serious. Oh, you're talking about the there are two eyes facing forward instead of on on either side like a fish. There's two kinds of animals. There's predators and prey. And yeah. the way to tell prey is their eyes are looking. They have two eyes, one looking left and one looking right, and they can actually move them kind of independently. I don't know. I never see a horse do this, but maybe that's because I need to. Maybe there needs to be two of us. You stand on one side of a horse, and I'll stand on the other side of a horse. How how will we calibrate? Left, left, <laughs> right. Over here, it's right. I've been reading Moby Dick, and it, it only occurred to me in the course of the descriptions of the whale that, you know, a, a whale's one eye is 15 uh, feet uh, from the other eye. Right. <laughs> I mean, no idea what's – Does the, can the, do they even overlap? Because the no. thing about prey animals is the reason they do that is to have a – you know, more of a, a broader arc of vision. You know, they can see all the way from behind them to in front of them. Um, I don't think a whale can see directly. I mean, I'm talking about a sperm whale. That's what you do if a, st- if a sperm whale is, is coming at you. I don't. I don't think you can. Yeah, you get you get right in. That's what uh, you know. That's what Ahab does. He gets right on the it's forehead. To stand of the directly whale. in front of it, and yeah. there's nothing Moby Dick can do. Suddenly, it's like the scene, and suddenly the Moby Dick's just pacing around like Darth Maul. I don't want spoiler alert. I don't want to give too much away, but there are some things that Moby Dick can do. Moby, Moby Dick does a couple of things. You're, you don't want to dissuade people from the pleasures of reading Moby Dick. Right. I don't want to suggest that you can just stand right in front of Moby Dick and he can't see oh, you and you're there's nothing of, for him to do. You think it's a liability issue. You think we're going to hear from people that try to stand in front of a sperm whale and, yeah. are, and are killed. And all of a sudden, right, they We find, won't hear from them. Because the, the sperm whale can turn it, you know, turn its head a little bit and then see you. Uh, so wait a minute. Is that true? Pray all have uh, have a vision that is that kind of is uh, eyes on side of the head and yes. and predators have eyes in the front yes wow and I it's guess be- I never if you that. look at an animal with a nice a, a, a nice um what regal kind of a face your eagles your tigers 
they're all predators. They're looking straight at you, man. Oh, you're right. And it's beca- and it's because for them the advantage is the stereo acuity, the the fact that they can perceive distances better when they've got two eyes to help them judge the difference. Because as you've noticed, even as a kid, closing one eye and opening the other one, things in the foreground move more than things in the background. There's like a weird parallax effect. And that's what lets the brain judge distance, along with tons of other cues. If you hold, if you put a hand over one eye right now, the world will not look quite like an oil painting because you've still got lots of other cues done with perfect photorealism right now, like the fact that things have shadows, the fact that things overlap, the fact that things fade as they get further away with more atmospheric effects. There's lots of ways to judge distance. But if you're an eagle trying to eat, what do eagles eat? A puppy. Yes, eagles eat puppies. Eagles eat puppies. And Spoiler alert. If you're a if you're a a tiger trying to eat a, a puppy, also a puppy, yeah. or a human hunter trying to eat a, a puppy, puppy, right? Or a bush puppy. The, the, the That's great, our ancestors ate. The great food, puppy, <laughs> delicious. Uh, you need to have that kind of distance, and you know you're an apex predator. You don't worry about things lunging at you from the side, right? Because you're on top of the food chain, baby. Now. Uh, Futurelings may not realize this, but because they have only one giant eye, <laughs> of the two of the two of us, you and I, um, you are the apex predator in this relationship because you have so? twenty ten vision. Oh right, you have fighter pilot vision, and I am you know just this sort of creaky old old retired predator that's just sort of still wearing the kingly robes, but... The lioness brings you food. That's right. Dra- drags you a carcass every night. Dra- brings me a puppy li- and drops it in my lap. The lioness just brought you a mug of coffee yeah, right now. she did right here. Uh, but you, uh, my question for you, because my depth perception is a little bit flawed. When really? I sit and read a book at night, I always close one eye. Um, I, and I suppose you don't do that because you can see around corners. But I always keep one eye closed. I'm. If you, I, if you have one eye closed, would you have a hard time grabbing an object? No, I don't know. No, well, but all, all, it is it is somewhat awkward. But I guess I'm asking you, as someone with with very good vision, do you also have very good depth perception? I think so. I mean, I don't even know what the tests are for that. I feel like I should just start throwing softballs at you I, while we record. I was reading that, um, you know, because stereo acuity, like really good depth perception. Stereo acuity is the name for good depth perception, and it's it's required in. Uh, athletes, you know, NFL quarterbacks, it's required in surgeons trying to get into a vein, uh, right. seamstresses uh, or sewers. What's the, there's gotta, is there, there's gotta be a gender, not awful way to say seamstress. Uh, tailors. tailors? Yeah. Or yeah. Sewer. Sew people. Sew people. Thread people. We're going to talk about tailors, uh, in, in, uh, next week's Omnibus. Oh no, I'm sorry. In Thursday's Omnibus. In, in 48 hours time. 48 hours time. You're going to hear more about tailoring. And fighter pilots, as you say, like having, uh, like you, I think you literally can't be even a commercial airline pilot if you have, if you have, uh, if you're missing most of your, most or all of your sight in one eye. Um, yeah, right. You can wear glasses and be a pilot, but you can't fly, uh, an F-18, I don't think, if you wear glasses. But can you wear an eye patch and fly for no, United? I don't think almost so. Almost certainly not. I mean, which is awful because... Sure. Think about all the people with. Oh, think about all the pirates that want to be airplane out pilot. of work pirates. Um, you couldn't be a high ally player, I don't think. And that's probably a, a a class of person that loses an eye a lot. Right. So it's tr- it's doubly tragic. An ultimate frisbee player. There are a lot of things that you need good depth perception, but it's a but it's a, it's such a curious thing. It's like asking someone, 
you know, what, what, how to describe the color orange or something like, how would you know you right. had good what are depth the, perception? The, I was reading that, you know, if you, people, they do uh, psych tests and when people have to cover one eye, they are worse at just reaching out and grabbing an object in a new, a new environment where they don't have a lot of built-in heuristics for how to judge distance. I, I, I often do a thing where I try to judge how far something is away. You know, you see a cloud and you're like, is that cloud like over the freeway or is it over the cascades? I can't really tell, oh, you know, like, but I don't think that's, that's maybe not depth perception so much as oh, I'm, learning I'm, a series of tricks. I bet it is. I mean, pilots do it all the time because they describe the weather to one another. And to the stupid, the passengers don't care, by the way. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Good news. We're uh, at Vegas. The wind is uh, out of the Northeast at 15 knots. <laughs> Look, buddy. Pilots really think that stuff matters to everyone because they talk about it to each other all the time. <laughs> but you know, when you're, when you're getting clearance to take off, the tower is going to say like, well, clouds are 3,500 feet broken and with the wind at this and, and you get so that you can look at weather and kind of gauge its altitude and how fast it's moving and all this. But I always struggle with it. And I think it's that my eyesight is... This is probably something our great-grandparents could have done just because it was a survival skill. Like, how how far away till that storm hits? Or, right, right. We don't need to know that anymore. If you think about what the way you look at the Milky Way on a, on a dark night in the desert and what the Milky Way looks like to me, I think it could affect your belief in God. Interesting, because to to me the Milky Way. Which way would it go? Well, it's just sort of a smear, you know, like oh yeah, there it is, Milky Way. Sure, maybe that increases your faith. Oh sure, right? Because you're you're gonna have to go by (laughs) universe is just. No, I think that (laughs) hope it's in good hands. I think you're you're much better eyesight. You look up and it's and it's much more of a feature of the infinite. You know, you're you're perceiving the infinitude. Even it, as a kid, I would often have that kind of night sky, just the, the kind of reeling. The awe, yeah. yeah. And and I can see it when I put enough lenses in, in in between me and God. But even that, right? Just just the idea of having a couple of, uh, just wearing glasses and looking up. Just this basic knowledge we're taking for granted, which is that your left eye is seeing something slightly different than your right eye does, actually, is what. You know, it's a big survival skill and is an important part of of what makes vision and interacting with the world possible. Is a fairly recent discovery. It's a 19th century discovery. Had uh, anyone noticed the front eye side eye thing? There must have been. No, I don't think so. I mean, I remember Ovid saying that humans are better than animals because the animals um, animals hang their heads down, and we have our heads, you know, regally erect, and therefore thinking. Oh. improving thoughts Lofty about the thoughts. divine. Yeah. Whereas well, animals are always looking at the ground being like, where's my next oat coming from? What the heck was Copernicus doing? I mean, everybody's up looking at the, you know, putting a stick in the ground, looking at shadows, trying to discern the diameter of the earth. Nobody's noticing that horses have eyes on either side of their head. And nobody like, don't? nobody like goes wall-eyed. Did you ever go wall-eyed when adults would yell at you as a kid? Uh, you mean yeah. eyes looking in opposite directions? Yeah, just make two of them. Just let you know. <laughs> oh, sure. Make, make two of the teacher. Oh, you did that too. Where you just dream, you just drift, drift off. off. Kind of, and I did it to my mom once when she was yelling at me for something. I was like four or five years old. And she was like, don't you do that. Oh, and she I, could see it. And I said, what? And she said, don't you make two of me. I used to do that to my mom too. And I am not letting you get away with oh, that. Oh, wow. Jennings mom. Mom powers. And even at the time, I remember thinking that was maybe a little beyond her purview to um to have control over how my retinas were uh how my eyes were focusing on the subject but she could see you unfocus your eyes that's a really 
I mean, you were pretty bold to do it right in her face. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like I was just, you know, halfway across the room and she's yelling at me to put away Legos or something. And I'm just like, you don't exist now. There's two of you yelling at me. (laughs) But yeah, nobody had really put it together. I guess Da Vinci, during the Renaissance, Da Vinci had like, had uh, said, you know what, there's no point in, because, you know, the Renaissance is when everybody's developing linear perspective and trying to actually represent depth in in two-dimensional art. And Da Vinci's like, look, if I put a column in front of a wall and then alternate which eye I close, yeah. the column appears to move in front of the wall. And you can never do that. And, and do, look at a painting. That'll never work. Um, it's like the Mission Impossible movie where they put up the, they have two projectors to somehow make the guy think there's the end of a hallway. Yeah. It's, you know, it's never going to work. The thing, the, the tunnel the Roadrunner paints is never going to, the Coyote paints is never going to look like a real tunnel because... It's just going to look flat. And Da Vinci knew it. Have you seen these t-shirts that they're advertising on the web now that make you look like there's a hole in your tummy? They're these optical illusion t-shirts that... um, But they're never going to match. When you move, they're not going to match, right? But they they somehow, at least in their advertisement, the static advertisement, you go, whoa, it looks like he's a Mobius strip, brah. But you're you're telling me... I mean, who was the first person to cross their eyes? (laughs) Like, was it Mel Brooks? It was uh, Kane. 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 C- crossed his eyes to, to indicate to Abel that he thought he was a dummy. That's right. Kane's a, Kane was a weirdo. <laughs> Adam and Eve and Abel, normal, nice family. They're not crossing their eyes at each other. Yeah. Then there's Kane. Can you cross your eyes? Uh, I'm not very good. I kind of have to do a thing where I like look at my nose, but it's not. You're absolutely right that you are not very good at it. Oh, yeah. Okay. Almost. Oh yeah! All right, you got there. It's a it's a muscle you can strengthen for sure. I can cross my eyes. Let's see it. That's good. Do you work on it? Uh, I, watch this one. Ready? Yeah, I like that one too. That's the he's one doing he... the thing where he crosses his eyes and then moves one of them. And really, all you're doing is crossing your eyes and then looking left. Yeah. It's but one eye moves and the other doesn't. It's it, it's impressive to the audience. I taught that to my daughter, and she is a eye crossing superstar. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know whether it's like sitting too close to the TV where now her eyes have independent motion and she'll never she's be able a prey to, animal now. Yeah. She's not a fire department anymore. Um, so Da Vinci knew that, um, something about 3d vision is, uh, something about what makes 3d vision possible is that objects move relative to each other. But because he chose a round column for his demonstration, the object itself didn't appear different. You know, oh, like a, oh, sure. a cylinder is one of the few things that'll look the same from every angle. You know, if he'd put a cube there, he would notice his left eye is seeing a little more of the left side of the cube, whereas his, his right eye might be seeing more of the face of the cube. Oh, so he was, he only, he on, his experiment only showed him perspective, but not. It showed him things moving relative to each other, but not individual objects looking different. Looking different. Um, oh, yeah. So I guess he could have given us that kind of 3D um, that they do when they make a movie 3D after they made it in 2D and they, all they, they can't make anything actually look rounded. They can just put things in front of other things, but they're like flats, like a yeah. an old west town, like flat spaceship in front of other flat spaceship in front of planet, right? Um, which is still a pretty decent illusion, but um, uh, but uh, you know, one I think there's been research showing that uh, for a long time, all this research was coming from artists. They were the only ones thinking about why the two eyes see different things. You know, scientists were grinding lenses, but um, it didn't matter that much to look at germs or Jupiter. Uh, you know stereoacuity. Right, but but the three-point perspective. Artists had to think about this. And you know, there's still a lot of thought that maybe some of these artists built little um camera obscura to, you know, to help them as as a viewing aid, you know, to project light of the scene onto the directly onto the canvas. Um 
a lot of these artists, some artists today we believe had only one eye and that's what helped them reproduce reality in 2D is because they already had basically 2D vision. Like Rembrandt is believed to have had eyesight and only one eye. What? Really? And that's why, you know, that's, that actually helps an artist Oh, to, to make a flat representation of the world. It, it actually hurts to have sure to have two different views on the world at the same time. Sure. I guess that's why artists are all, you know, they're closing one eye and holding up their thumb, right? Uh, interesting. I, I, I had never heard that. That <clears throat> it never occurred to me that being one, ha- having sight and only one eye would make one a, a better artist. Having blurry sight could make you more of a, well, isn't that true of a Chuck Close? Like those kind of goofy portraits he does are a result of him. Goofy? I love them, but they're goofy. <laughs> yeah, they're a little goofy. That's, that's not the pejorative kind of goofy. Uh, huh. Well, maybe maybe I've missed my calling. Maybe I should have been an artist. Oh, wait. I am an artist. But you're an uh, an aural artist. An aural artist. Does that mean you can only hear out of one ear? Maybe it's the equivalent of Brian Wilson being a great studio engineer, uh, you know, a great a great studio musician and engineer because right. he already heard everything in mono. Ken, you always smell great. Oh, thank you. How do you do it? Uh, wouldn't it be funny if this wasn't an ad read and this is just part of the show where we talk about how I smell? It's like a new feature. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just, you smell like roses, but you never smell like aluminum. That's because native deodorant does not have aluminum. They just have like natural ingredients you've heard of. How do they do it? How do they keep you uh, deodorized with no aluminum? Well, they, uh, I mean, when I think of a great smell, I think aluminum. It turns out you do not need aluminum to smell. Think of all the things in nature that smell good with no aluminum. Think about a rose. Uh, Okay. Virtually aluminum free. Okay. When you bake cookies, do you try to sprinkle aluminum in there? Well, not anymore. No, no. (laughs) It might be terrible for you, but it smells fantastic. But surely in order to create a, a, a deodorant that doesn't use aluminum they must have tested it on animals they don't test it on animals uh, almost the entire product line is vegan uh if you don't want baking soda in your deodorant no i, I, don't. I don't know who i don't know who that is is I, it you i don't want it no incredibly anti-baking soda for some reason i don't want it in my cookies either well then you would get their line of sensitive deodorants well this must be uh full of risk to try this <laughs> it, it sure sounds like it, it right does. and and what did i say that made you think it would be full of risk exactly no it just seems like not tested on animals no aluminum uses natural products where's the kicker uh no full of risk risk free to try tell me more you can order uh anything you want from native and it'll be free shipping within the US and there's free 30 day returns and exchanges so whether you like it or not you are going to be a happy, happy customer. Well, now, what if I start to use native products and I love it? I'm terrified I'm going to run out. You don't have to run out. They've got a subscription program, so you'll never have to sweat, no pun intended, about uh, coming up dry. Oh, I guess that's another deodorant pun. There it is. Go do it. Keep going. Fantastic. You don't have to sweat about coming up dry. Uh, I love the smells of the native products they sent me. If you are in the market for a new deodorant... Well, what do I do? You need to make the switch today. Go to nativedeo.com slash omnibus, or just use promo code omnibus when you check out, and you'll get 20% off your first order. So you're saying nativedeo.com slash omnibus. Yep. And then I would use the promo code omnibus at checkout and get 20% off my first order? What a savings.
not until the 19th century, the you know the beginning of modern science and industry, did anybody really tackle the idea that um, objects looking different in your different eyes was a huge part of uh, of human vision. And that discovery was made by the eccentric British scientist Charles Wheatstone. Oh, thank goodness! Um, That's, this is why we can't tax the eccentric British scientists. I don't know if he was rich. He was a he was a prodigy as a kid, but I don't think he was. He's not one of these aristocratic guys. He actually came from a musical family. And he got into science because of his very close, maybe even synesthetic relationship to sound and uh, music. He um, to this day he invented. The, he's the inventor of the concertina, the most oh. common little English mini accordion yeah. thing. Um, and a lot of his, even though you know his name is associated with the Wheatstone Bridge, which is a kind of circuit for measuring resistance. Uh, in fact, in his time, a lot of his inventions were, he invented something called the microphone, which was not really a microphone. What was it? It was such a good name that, that it, later on they were like, we're going to repurpose that. It was a way of uh, augmenting small sounds, but it just, it, it, was not elect, it was not electronic. It was an acoustic way of doing the same. Was it a, just a megaphone? It was just the guy on um, Weekend Update. Well, wait a it's the opposite of a megaphone. It was, the guy on it was the guy on Weekend Update who would say, Francisco Franco. <laughs> he also invented something called the telephone, which was not a telephone. He, was, he thought the future of um, communication was not going to be electric. It was going to be acoustic. So he had all these um, ideas based on the vibration of strings and rods, you know, kind of the tin can telephone yeah. technology. Uh, and Repeaters, uh, big, big, uh, big parabolic. Uh, cones up on top of hills. Well, just imagine if you wanted to send a message instead of tapping a telegraph, you're you're like pl- plucking a a guitar string, and then you know, in the next town, somebody hears your melody and passes it along. Whale song. He have, yeah, whale song. Basically, it's, it sounds like he's a great branding person <laughs> because he thought of the words, but yeah, not the inventions. And microphone. I mean, who is this guy? He also invented the Playfair cipher, which is a. The earliest encryption technique, you know, it's easy to break a simple cipher substitution because you can see, oh, there's too many of this letter, so G is probably E or T. You know, you can use letter frequency and patterns. He invented the very first diagram one, which is you use pairs of letters. You know, you encode, if you're encoding hello, John, you encode the H and the E together and the L and the L together. You do it with a simple grid that has all the letters of the alphabet in it. That's smart. Are those also easily crackable now? Yes. And today you can do it in microseconds with a computer, but they were uh, incredibly complicated to solve in the pre-computer age to the degree that the Playfair cipher was commonly used in World War I and World War II oh. uh, to send messages that the that the Hun couldn't crack. Right. Well, it's not like the Bletchley Park folks couldn't work their way through it. No, at some point. Yeah. I mean, yeah. World War II is the beginning of these more advanced ciphers, but you know, for just battlefield communiques, right. uh, it was a really, I guess it was the way to go. And uh, eventually he was convinced that vibrating guitar strings connecting cities was not the way to go. And he got, he got really into the big champion of uh, telegraphy. And in fact, he was on the, uh, the first, um, the committee that was cr- created to string the transatlantic cables under the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, nice, nice callback, uh, to, nice callback to previous omnibus. But in the midst of all these other, um, mostly acoustic and audio innovations, he discovered stereopsis—the uh, the idea that the uh, the eyes can see different things. And incredible to think that we are stringing cables across the Atlantic in the same lifespan as first really discovering stereopsis. I mean, it's funny that you could... Stereopsis. Stereopsis. 
Like you can draw with your pencil a picture. You know, if you draw two circles kind of next to each other, and then both do this, and then you draw a bird in 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 front of one, like right in the center. Like draw a bird flying in front of it. Show me yours. Show show me yours, so I know that I'm doing it right. Or 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 should I just be doing this based on your description? Yeah, that'll be a little test. Oh, I see. Okay. So So there's two circles, and each one has a bird in front of it. But on the left one, the bird is further to the left. Okay. You know, you can kind of overlap your eyes and see, oh, that bird is in front of the sun there, you know? Let me see here. You know, so there, there's there's super low-tech ways to produce a good illusion. But nobody had ever, uh, nobody ever done it. Oh, you know what? I think you have to put the left-hand bird to the right. Is that right? I think the thing that you move further to the right on the left side will recede. Well, Can you go wall-eyed? Pretend I'm your mom yelling at you. Okay, I'm going to do this again where the thing thing is on the right. And it, how, how far it, it, apart are the circles? Depends on how wall-eyed you can go. I mean, I would I would place them pretty close together. All right, let me see. I'm if you can get the circles again, to overlap. But just by putting a... It can be even simpler than that. A circle with a dot in the middle, but make the, make the dots slightly either cross-eyed or wall-eyed. And then oh, if wow. you make if you make the dots wall-eyed, the dot will appear to be behind the plane of the paper. <clears throat> so if, if you make the dots cross-eyed, they'll appear to be in front of the plane of the paper. So this could have been discovered really at any time, but nobody had ever done the work. And there was no photography yet. So you couldn't put two photographs, in, one in front of each eye, and and get a cool 3D image. To do that, the thing that became, what is that little... Little stereoscope? The stereoscope. Uh, Wheatstone invented the first stereoscope, but his kind of sucked because he didn't use lenses. He used mirrors. Oh. So it was like two different images kind of bouncing onto a thing. Uh, Wheatstone invented it. Wheatstone invented this kind of crappy one. He also invented the, the worst invention, the pseudoscope, which is the opposite of a stereoscope. It, um, it bounces the mirror, the, the, the left-hand image into the right eye and the right-hand image onto the left eye, so everything looks reversed. Things, things um, recede that should advance and vice versa. Oh, can you can you imagine this? Like uh, like you right now, you would look like a cutout in the wall to me, giant and behind the wall. Why would you want that? Exactly. I see. Because he's because he's uh, trying to figure out how the eye does this and how the brain does this. It was actually a contemporary of Wheatstone, a kind of a, a rival of his, uh, a Scottish scientist named Sir David Brewster who improved on Wheatstone's mirror stereoscope by saying, look, this would be easier with lenses. Then you could just put one image right in front of each eye. You don't need the mirrors. Wheatstone didn't, was annoyed at this and said, oh, you know, there was a, a schoolmaster in the 1810s that knew you could do that. You didn't invent anything, anything <laughs> first or so. He was a little bit bitchy. But Wheatstone invented the lens stereoscope where you could, and photography had just come into flower as well. So now if you took two pictures of Stonehenge from 10 feet apart, left to right, you know, in parallax, you could then put one in front of your left eye and one in front of your right eye, put them in Brewster's lenticular stereoscopic invention, and your left eye would see what your left eye would see at Stonehenge, your right eye would see what your right eye would see there. The image would effectively be in 3D. So those stereoscopic photos, because I have a few of them. I have one of of, uh, Custer's Battlefield Cemetery. They're actually <laughs> of all the ones you could own. You were like, I'll have that one. <laughs> they are. Um, they're actually the two photographs are taken ten feet apart. I mean, I, I always assume they were just the same two photographs, and they're put on a card slightly <laughs> askew, and it and it is a no. They have to be different images. Oh, interesting. If, if that's the same image twice, you would get no. 
the only thing you would get would be uh, an idea that the, the card is slightly further away from you than the plane of the paper. You know, the, the Custer's battlefield is flat, but a little further away than the card or closer. So it was, it was, it became so a thing that photographers would go do, like take a picture of, of Tra- uh, Trajan's column and then walk 10 feet over there and take another picture of it specifically to, to make one of these, make one of these. cards. Oh. And, and probably actually probably what they would just have is a single stereoscopic camera that had the two lenses mounted. I don't even know if it's, it's probably not 10 feet. You know, mounted some distance apart. I see. To just to you know, you you change the distance between them to create the the depth. illusion of depth you want, um, and take a single picture then, and then develop them each, put them on a card, and this became one of the biggest crazes of Victorian England and eventually America. Um, in 1856, there were. You know, the, the companies that made the little stereoscopes, which you, you've probably seen, it's kind of a flat thing you put in front of your eye. And you can move I, the, the, uh, the, the viewer. Car, yeah. Because yeah. you want, you just, basically you need the card to be in, in focus in the viewer. That's all you need. Um, and, you know, the companies that made the viewers would also sell the images because that would sell more viewers. In 1856, their catalog for the leading London stereoscope company had 10,000 images. Wow. By five years later, in 1861, there were a million images you no, could order in their catalog. Really? Yeah. They're all out there in thrift stores too. I mean, a lot of them actually are not because really? they were the elite kind of looked down on this as kind of a cheap a, a, a craze of the poor who couldn't afford to, you know, see to the see, real trades column. column. Right. Yeah. Uh like this was just kind of a dumb oh. a dumb thing that the poor would spend pennies on. So they were seen as disposable. You'd get one and you'd look at it, you'd show your friends and then it kind of loses its appeal. And you didn't you, keep them in and a box. You trash it. Yeah, uh to this, you know, when uh, a rec- uh, recently an English museum wanted to do an exhibit on these, and luckily Brian May has a huge collection of them. Oh, isn't that nice? As you would expect. Yeah, thank you, Brian. So Brian May has uh, donated a lot of, of his images, but, you know, except for, and they show up in thrift stores. I've seen them too. Yeah. But not to the degree, like these were everywhere, like newspapers, and oh. they just got tossed the next week. And were they used that way? Were, were, were they uh, like images of the moment? Like this Custer's Battlefield one, I've always been curious about because it's just a it's just i mean have you been to have you been to little, little big horn i have not it's just a grassy hill uh, it's, overlooking it's a river and now there's a kind of a uh, a rundown cemetery there like it's it's not a thing that you would put into your scary stereoscopic viewer and be marvel you know you wouldn't marvel at it i guess it, it- at some level all you want is for something to be close to the camera and something else yeah. uh, or, or you know a mountain range or a river to be a little further away. But uh, it feels like it would almost be uh, the, when I've looked at this it's like is was this a news uh, like you you could see them kind of being um if 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 they were ephemera like you're saying it's like well, this was the site of the big car crash last Wednesday and everybody's <laughs> like let me check it out. It's like action news. Yeah, right. We don't have a chopper but uh there's no TVs, right? Uh, it was used for uh, kind of a lot of you are there kind of travel stuff. You know, in, in Europe, it would be cathedrals and palaces. In the U.S., it was often canyons and mesas. Right. Um, places you could, because it was difficult to travel then for even. It was the Rick Steves. Even for the metaphors. Yeah, it was Rick Steves, basically. A funny use of it, a use case was to take famous paintings, have people reenact them as tableaus with, with accurate props and poses and costumes. Then take the two pictures, and suddenly you could see all your favorite paintings in 3D. 
Wow, that is both super cheesy and corny and also, for some reason, like inexplicably sexy. It's, uh, I guess it's a time when there's no, like our, our iconic images would be, you know, movie scenes yeah. or, uh, you know, what, brands or memes or something. But in a time before that, really the images that everybody were, you know, mass culture images that everybody could relate to would be. Right, Gainsbourg's Blue Boy, David's Wrath of the Horatii, or something, or you, Oath of the Horatii. You remember? I mean, this Futurelings uh, hopefully will celebrate this in their time as much as we do in ours. But you remember during the pandemic that um, take you know uh, re- reenact famous paintings yes. in home at home with your cat and your and some canned. Uh, tomatoes, which was a common Victorian and Edwardian parlor game as well. Is that right? Yeah, you try to you you know it would be a fun thing after dinner. Everybody'd dress up and you'd maybe there'd be some level of guessing what the painting is, but mostly it's just like, wow, check it out, Washington crossing the Delaware. Uh, that's wonderful. I mean, I found I found those images super delightful. People recreating paintings, uh, but it's amazing to think that this is a thing now almost two hundred years old. I just love the idea. It, it's the it's the kind of it's like charades, except, uh, yeah, you, it, it requires that you have a familiarity with the art. I mean, and the secret sauce seems to be, you know, the same the same reason people would go to see, you know, a Pixar movie in three D that they had already seen once in two D, which is you've seen this flat, but look how what a game changer it is when parts of it are slightly closer to you than other parts. Yeah, yeah, and it did blow people's minds. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, the first effect of looking at a good photograph through the stereoscope is a surprise such as no painting ever induced. Wait, I can't read my own writing. Announced? Induced? Who knows? Adduced. Adduced, probably. And he, w- he was just so taken by it that he invented his own variety of stereoscope because he was fascinated by the tech. Um, it was used to... It was realized that scientists could use it, so there was some scientific advantage. Like, you take two pictures of the moon, um, you could use a 3D a stereoscope to actually see depth on the moon and determine how deep craters were or how high oh, raised, raised areas were. Um, uh, the other use case, of course, was pornography, which abounded. Right. You I could, think that's still true of these VR headsets. Oh, is that right? I've said to, you know, I've written a couple of I my don't friends. I know anymore. Like, how am I supposed to use this? Because I, I know a couple of people that have them. How am I supposed to use this? Like, what are the games? Tell me what's cool about them. And I definitely got one reply that was like, well, you got to go find porn. And I was like, the last thing I want to do is be in the basement with, you know, like in a sensory deprivation state and then be confronted with like, first of all, porn is not a thing you want to see up close. You don't want it coming at you? No, I sort of want it from across the, I want it through the, the haze of, I want it through, through some atmosphere. The Victorians right? were, Over there. the Victorians were very impressed when the, the half disrobed lady could be you know, standing next to a curtain that was slightly nearer to you than she was. Were they pretty porny, the Victorians? I think so. I mean, maybe there, is there some revision, uh, double revisionist idea now that they weren't? I think they were. I think they were. They, I think just judging by, um, you can go by things like sex work numbers, num- right. you know, numbers of prostitution arrests and stuff. and it, it, Flashman novels. <laughs> it, I think the idea we have of them as like extremely horny is correct. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, and I'm sure a lot, even fewer of those survived because you made sure those. Oh, right. You know, tucked them in your shoebox that then got burned in a fire. Just like the, you know, burn my, you know, erase my hard drive after I die. 
Um, the fad lasted for quite a while. I mean, it, it burned. Wait, 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 was that something you, you, are you telling me that I need to erase your hard drive after you die? Well, only, only certain directories. Right. We'll talk about this later. Much on that. Even, you know, this burned bright, but the fad did last for the next 50 years. Uh, In fact, Charlie Chaplin was inspired to make his movie, The Gold Rush, by some very vivid stereoscopic views of the uh, Arctic landscape. So it seemed to, it seemed to spark the uh, imagination of a, of many, multiple generations of artists and thinkers. When it finally died in the 1910s, it was killed by new and better tech. People started collecting postcards. That was the new fad. So just as a collection, you wouldn't keep your lenses. And then of course you had radio, you know, the first kind of hotter medium. And even though, even though it's a, uh, an oral medium instead of a visual one, you know, that's what, that's what people would do at home of an evening instead of looking at, uh, looking at what Hadrian's wall through a slightly different angle. Did, did, did early film try to duplicate the stereoscopic, um, I'm talking about movies. Uh, it seems like if, if 3d pictures was already a, a popular thing that it would have been a very early idea in, in uh, cinema too. I mean, technologically a lot more difficult to have two cameras, two film cameras running, but but it would have occurred to people, right? Yeah, we think of it as a 50s fad because that was when, um, you know, the first polarized light glasses were created. You know, your left eye can only let in light polarized this way. Your right eye can only let in the other kind of light. You've got twin projectors. Right. Um, but earlier, like in very early, like the early days of film from the 1890s on, I mean, the first thing you could do is just project two images and have people watch it through a stereoscope. The, oh, the hmm. same way they would you would look at Google Cardboard, well, it's, which is what they did in the fifties, right? A uh, a pair of cardboard glasses with red lens on one side. Blue Actually, red green anaglyph, you know, where where the images are different colors and the eyes make the the, the wrong one invisible. That um, you know, that technology was used in the like nineteen tens, oh, I think. Wow. Um, but in the 50s, even though we remember them as the red and green ones, actually, they were using the kind of modern IMAX ones where it was just different polarities of light. You know, if you went to see House of Wax or whatever in the 50s, you were using basically the same tech you would use to see Avatar. Um, it was smell-o-vision that was the real advance. <laughs> well, there were these kind of momentary bursts where people would re-realize that it's mildly fun to look at things in 3D. You know, the movies want to fight off television, so... Here's a here's a horror movie in 3D. Um, Why well, can't television do it? Television can do it. Do you know the way television does 3D today? Is it actually will um, blink a left eye image and then a right eye image, and you have to wear glasses that blink in opposite in you know in, in synchron synchronous synchronicity with your screen, <laughs> right? So that when the left image is on, your right eye is dark. And then when the right eye image comes on, your left eye is dark. But it's happening fast enough that you you don't perceive it. Yeah, you still. I mean, I think you do kind of. You don't love it, but you do. Right, it flickers. It, it's fast enough that you get the persistence of vision. Hmm. Um, and then Viewmasters, of course, in the '60s, that was a. You had one. I had. I still have one. I have one on my coffee table in my living room. I used to love them, although it. You get you go around the circle once, go around it twice, then what? I mean, that is kind of the problem with 3D is, you know, like Oliver Wendell Holmes, you are startled and delighted at first, and then you go around the circle again and you're like, yep, there's a, 
there's uh, the mad tea party. Yep, there's the Matterhorn. You know, you, you've seen all the pictures once. And that seems to be baked into 3D, which is why it continues to be a fad. But all of these, you know, a recurring fad, but all of these different technologies we've mentioned have one thing in common, which is they need, you need some kind of hardware. Right. They've never invented a way that you could just sit in a movie theater and the film appears in three dimensions. They did once. They kind of did. This is, uh, are we finally getting to the subject of our show an hour in? I hope not. This <laughs> in the uh, late 50s at Bell Labs, a scientist named, a Hungarian American scientist named Bella Yulesh. Mm-hmm. I'm sure our Hungarian viewers will tell me if that's, listeners will tell me if that's wrong, um, was studying ways to detect camouflaged objects in, from aerial photogrammetry, you know? Oh, I see, sure. Like you're looking at spy photos from a, U2 plane. Uh, how, how do you tell which, what have yeah, blankets what, over them? And what, what, what here is a camouflaged air hanger and what is not? Um, and of course, you know, the distance, the stereo acuity is a, is a good way to do that because the things that are higher will jump out at you. Um, but, you know, the, the, the things that are higher are also just painted with the same kind of weird patterns as the landscape. And this is where uh, Dr. Ulesh came up with the idea of the random dot stereogram which he first referred to as Cyclopean vision. And it basically relies on the making two of your mom when she's yelling at you technology of, or, or have you ever done this thing where you put your two fingers together and you go kind of wall-eyed and you get a hot dog between your fingers? No. This was, this was in some magic tricks you can do at home book when I was a kid. Just go a little wall-eyed and your fingertips turn into a, uh, now you've got, you got a little hot dog between your, your fingers. Mm, do you see mm, what I, do you see what I'm saying? Mm, hot dog. Ow. Where the fingers no. o- where the fingers overlap, kind of makes a little weird uh, two fingernailed object between your fingertips, uh, and you know he called this cyclopean vision the idea that instead of seeing something different with each eye, you could converge and make a new thing in the middle that only this middle eye can see, and this was the first time it was he combined it was the first time that scientists had realized that stereo vision actually happens in the brain, not in the eye. This was not understood until the 50s or 60s. Whoa. That it's not just uh, something optical your eye is doing to make the world in 3D, that your brain is receiving all this input and building a 3D map out of them. And, uh, you know, in the years that he... And so basically he built two images with just a selection of random dots and by, you know, by making the random dots slightly different the way a concealed camouflaged object would be. And by overlapping the two, the, uh, the you know, the difference would jump out. And in the seventies, a group of designers combined his random dot stereogram, a series of designers combined his random dot stereogram technology with something called the wallpaper effect, which had been, I think discovered by Wheatstone or Brewster in the 19th century. The wallpaper effect requires an object like strips of wallpaper that repeat um, in horizontal across some kind of horizontal plane. And if you stand far away from them, and again, go wall-eyed a bit, you can get the repeating strips to overlap. And if you can get that, if you can get them to overlap, the wall will appear to recede. It's as if you're looking at something larger and farther away because your brain has, you know, you, you fooled your brain by converging two items that don't actually converge on the plane where they should. 
the first ever time I took LSD, I uh, was at a party in Girdwood, Alaska, and I got overwhelmed by the party and went, it was in a, it was in an A-frame cabin, but I went into some back room. The cabin was actually owned by the Fink family. I don't know who that is. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, patriarch of the Fink family was um, uh, one of the mayors of Anchorage. The biggest Fink? He was, the, he was Mr. Fink, the big Fink. I went into a back room that had <clears throat> wallpaper, like you're describing. And it was the first time I'd been alone with LSD. You know, up until I'd taken it and I was in a party environment and I was like, wow, this is too too much. But I went into this back room and I was by myself now with the with the drug. And looking at the wall, saw this effect that you're describing, that the that the wallpaper, which had a repeating pattern, you know, the pattern, of course, is crawl. I mean, I say, of course, I'm speaking to futurelings that are all hallucinating all the time, describing this to you. I, I shouldn't use the term, of course, although I imagine that you're licking toads quite a bit in your, seems like when I was at your house last there were, there were all there were, there were toads everywhere. Poison dart frogs just crawling up the walls. But uh, you know the the patterns are are kind of moving and crawling and undulating. But then looking at them, the this dis the, the you know the this effect of like wait a minute the wall is so far away now or you know the um, and yeah, it, and it was happening in, in entirely like well obviously in my head it wasn't that this a frame cabin suddenly became fifty feet across but. I mean, one of the things I loved the first time I saw a magic... First time you took LSD? The first time, well, my equivalent <laughs> of this is seeing a magic eye dolphin in a magic eye poster in the early 90s. And it really was the fact that, you know, my brain was creating something that was not there. You know, like I, I had found a way to trick myself into seeing something that wasn't there. And, you know, if you're straight edge and haven't tried psychedelic substances, that's very noteworthy, you know? Like, right. what is happening like, clearly there's no dolphin here, but I can make a dolphin appear. Um, I don't think it's a feeling of power just so much as just marveling at, uh, uh, you know, the mysteries of consciousness or perception or something, which I guess is also the appeal of psychotropic drugs. I have to now confess that I was never able to see the dolphin. <gasps> the magic eye fad, which I'm sure you're about to describe as a thing that swept the nation. It did, briefly. Um, I stared at those freaking things everywhere I went. There were there were calendars, there were books, there were posters on dorm room walls. You could not get away. I could not find the dolphin. And they're so frustrating because they just look like TV static if you cannot see the dolphin. It's just static. And, and it was a thing that, you know, people stare at the thing and then they're like, oh, wow, look at that. And I would just stare and stare and stare. And I could never... It is a great epiphany when it appears. So maybe the fact that you have gone 30 years means you are in for the greatest uh, magic eyegasm of all time when but, you can finally see the dolphin. Like, I definitely could turn the teacher into two teachers. But all these little things, like, can you see the hot dog? All these, You know, that, that we've tried today. I have not successfully seen the bird fly behind the circle or the hot dog between my fingers. I think it's a thing you can train your eye to do. I bet I could, I bet I'm not going to do it on air, but I bet, I bet given some time you could see the dolphin. The Ken Academy. You're gonna teach. <laughs> this is going to be my, um, not my Ted talk, but what's that thing that le learning, the learning Academy uh, yeah. thing. Uh, is it, uh, do if you, you pay a, $900 each for a series of 20 minute talks. Do you use a carrot or stick approach? <laughs> 
Oh yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Maybe if somebody had just beaten you every time you didn't see the dolphin. I would I would well, I'd definitely been like, no, I see it, I see How it. How many <laughs> lights do you see? Uh the the magic eye illusion, which derives from Bela Ulesh's random dot stereogram, just it combines that idea that by slightly changing a, a repeated a, a few dots in a repeated array of dots, you can make some appear to advance or recede. With the wallpaper effect, that the idea that, um, you know, something could a mo- motif can repeat horizontally within an image, means you no longer needed two images. You you could create an auto stereogram, a, a device that can uh, an image that contains three D information within itself with no second image required. But you have to be able to unfocus your eyes. Yes, you have to. You Which have is to, a universal ability. I don't know. I think so. I mean, if you can make two of me right now, you are you are unfocusing your eyes. Yep, you're doing it. Yeah, okay. Um, and if there was another one of me sitting right there with a slightly different pattern of checks on his flannel shirt, you could see a dolphin. How would I feed them both? The, I only have enough Ken Chow for one. <laughs> this, was, this was an invention of a scientist, a neuroscientist named Christopher Tyler, who realized you could combine Brewster's wallpaper effect with... Ulesh's random dot stereogram. Um, the problem was, you know, before computers, how do you, you know, what kind of artisan could create the slightly, the slightly different placement of all these dots required to make the dolphin advance? But make them similar enough that, yes, yeah. They have to be similar enough to repeat with the subtle differences that will move certain planes closer to your eye. Uh, but luckily, the personal computer, the home computer came out right at that time. And very quickly, um, a, a team of programmers, um, the lead programmer, I think, was a woman, Maureen Clark, in keeping with our idea of, you know, a lot of the early programmers being mm-hmm. women before the home computer killed it. Uh, created very simple, basic code on an Apple II to generate, to output the right series of dots and then to move the correct dots or, or bend them, uh, if you want a rounded surface, um, to make objects appear to, uh, to you. And a British publisher called N.E. Thing. N.E. Thing. I don't don't know what the N and the E stand for. um, Put out a book of these auto stereograms in 1991. I was there. I feel like I was ground zero for this stuff. You were in an airport. Yeah. Scratching your head. Um, And uh, I think maybe they the first place it was released was in... Japan, a Japanese company that sold magic tricks, um, published a book with this technology also in 1991, I think using anything's um, engine or computer program or whatever it was. It did at the time feel magic trick adjacent. Yes. It's a novelty, right? Yeah. Because it would be like a, it would be like one of these optical illusions you would look at in Omni magazine and the cube would would either come out or back or, oh, right. or, or some impossible tool. Yeah, it's Freud's face or two naked ladies. Yeah, some M.C. Escher BS. The Japanese book was called Miru Miru Megu Yoku Naru Magikai. Oh, which, Magikai. Which means, yeah, that's Japanese for Magikai. Mm-hmm. The title means, Your eyesight gets better and better in a very short rate of time, Magikai. Uh, which maybe if they had used that marketing on you, you would have you would have jumped aboard. I wouldn't have been so scared of it, yeah. Um. Andrews and McMeal, the American publishers that, that I think at the time I associate with like Farside and Calvin and Hobbes uh-huh. um, books, they bought the license to anything's images. 
and uh, you know, and really hyped up this just this new state of the art patented technology that would let you see 3D. Because you know, here for the first time, it's just unaided. You don't have to look through a lens. There's no mirrors. Your brain can create 3D. And this thing in the U.S. when it first came out in I think '93, it just went bananas perpendicular they, they sold just millions of copies of this book and then all its sequels which were just the same book except here's uh air, this book is airplanes in 3d right this one has birds the in 3d is facing that way and it's a little bit limited because you know the kinds of things that are cool images without any kind of you're you're logged you're locked into the um the surface coloration and pattern of the background you choose so you can't make the tiger have stripes unless the background also has stripes and you can't make the words different colors, you, you know, cause everything has to be the same color or your eye can't make the wallpaper effect work. So, so it's gotta be something where the shape itself is kind of cool, but you need no surface detail to figure it out. So having never seen one, um, <laughs> am I not like bringing it to life? Well, I'm, what I, I guess <laughs> what I'm wondering is, does it, because the problem with a lot of uh, 3d stuff is that when you get over to the edge of the image, you're the, the, the illusion is lost because yeah. you you can see the edges, and that's true here too. Like so, it has to just be a dolphin in the center of the something page. appears floating in the center in fr- in front of the image, whereas everything at the side of the image is you know you've got one eye seeing random dots and the other eye seeing nothing, and so that just is kind of a cloudy mess to you. Nothing, no information can be contained. So you can't like show uh, the Appian way. It has to just be like an apple, right? Um, and also something like the Appian way. You know, it's not great for landscape because there's, um, no, there's no, yeah, no surface detail. Yeah, right. Okay. You know, this, if you've ever seen, you know, the here's the terrain of Mars, but everything's the same color because it's just done with some kind of radar. You know, it's it's a little dull. I thought everything on Mars was the same color. It is, but it's not gray. Oh, I it's, see. It's red. Yeah, it's red. If that was just red, it would be better. Um, this thing sold millions of copies in the U.S. What once it was, and you know, anything quickly rebranded as Magic Eye Enterprise, Magic Eye Inc. Um, it was on the New York Times bestseller list for 73 weeks. Whoa. It was, as you say, posters in dorms and calendars in offices and uh, art ex- exhibitions in you know, lo- lobbies and convention centers and airports everywhere. But the images themselves were nothing, it was all about the Amaze the the amazement people felt the at momentary the epiphany when mind when something appears out of nothing. Right. Yeah. They all just looked like TV static, and maybe there's you to some degree. Maybe you believe it's a big conspiracy, and everybody's like religion. Everybody's just pretending <laughs> to see or feel something just to fit in. The emperor's I, new new uh, dolphin. I definitely felt stupid and excluded, but I also <laughs> from the outside of it, never having experienced the amazement of it, it also did feel. I could see only the faddishness of it and not ex- not have the experience of like, oh, cool. And so the faddishness of it seemed, um, I mean, it was really gauche. You were, you were not wrong. Just like these earlier fads, it blew everybody's mind for about eight seconds. And then they would kind of evangelize it and maybe they would, you know, oh, grandma likes these. Let's get her the second book for right. Christmas. It became a Christmas present there's and a, a stocking a, stuffer. There's like a, yeah, there's a shadow kind of after boom effect. It was in a Dave Matthews video. Confusingly, it was the, um, it was a plot point in at least three different early 90s sitcoms. There's a Seinfeld and a Friends and an Ellen where one character can't see the dolphin 
Oh, oh, not being able to see it was a commonplace enough occurrence. Well, what other? Yeah, what other comic? Yeah, I think to this day, you're, you know, probably one in three people who remember the fad never got to see the dolphin. Oh, maybe I should connect with those people. Maybe we should have an online community. Do you think there's like a support group? Maybe, or maybe, maybe we're a superior breed. Maybe our minds are concerned with loftier things. I, I cannot fool my mind. My mind is too clever <laughs> to be fooled by my mind. I see the colored dots. You can't fool me. It really is the, the definitive example of a kind of a former genre of art that really only works once, mm-hmm. you know? Things in 3D, even the, the 3D movie craze that Avatar created didn't last. People stopped going to them because it was just kind of a dim, flickery version of a regular movie and it wasn't worth the headache of wearing the glasses. I saw Avatar in 2D and it was just, it was perfectly fine. Wait, th- that's the thing. Your memory of the art does not include the 3D. You know, like when I think my memories of Avatar in 3D are identical to your memories of Avatar in 2D. I'm never going to be like, oh, and then that time the dragon went behind that cliff. Woo. I do remember seeing something at an IMAX theater that was a 3D movie where, you know, somebody threw a ball at me. Robert Downey Jr. threw a ball at me or something. It was something like, it was an Iron Man movie that they had 3D'd. I don't know. There was a fad. Do like you think it saying. really happened? Were you at Robert Downey Jr.'s house? Robert Downey Jr. and I throw balls to one another. Well, I mean, we play catch. If you know as, what I mean. That's part of a thing. But no, I don't. I do remember sitting in the IMAX theater and going, whoa. But do you think that I didn't le- flinch? Does that lessen it as an art form? I mean, what do you think in general about the song that's amazing on first listen, or the movie that wows you the first time you see it, but is not re-listenable or rewatchable? Like, what's better, that or the song that grows for over the years, or the novel that grows over the years? I don't know if I'm susceptible to songs that are only good on first listen. Really? Because I think. A- I don't know. It's just part of your part of your training. You that, don't, what about some just some super poppy bubblegum earworm song that you just can't get enough of, but then you're sick of a week later? I don't you, think you that don't, happens. You don't, no, I think it does. It doesn't happen to you. Oh no! Oh no! I know it happens to the world, but no, I think I, I, I don't know. As a as a person that makes songs, I feel like I see through the bubblegummy stuff. Ah, I see. But I also love bubblegum pop, but just the stuff that endures, right? The um, like I'll still listen to the romantics. It's what I like about you, what which I is like about the you. most bubblegummy pop that there is. But it's still it's still great. What about a like in fiction? I think in movies it's often something where it hinges on a something that only works once. Oh, like you're talking a, about the the, the M, twist, M Night Shyamalan sure, a twist in the Sixth Sense, or like the I remember like just evangelizing the Usual Suspects like crazy, and then watching it a second time and realizing actually that's kind of a cop out and it's cheap and I, yeah. don't, I don't know if I would even recommend this movie. But I think I could watch that. I, I could watch The Usual Suspects on a plane or or The or the Sixth Sense and just be like, I mean, you know, you see it coming, but... I rewatch The Sixth Sense and it's very effective. I yeah. watched it for Halloween with my kids. But I mean, in general, like, does that make it... Is, is it a, something more noble, like a movie where... The first time you watch it, you're under... Well, I'm trying to think of a good example of this. I'm trying to think of it too. Like, there are all kinds of gimmicky surprise media uh but <sighs> i think over like i used to just assume that that was bad art right. and good art would seem difficult at first but the more times you watch the antonioni movie or listened to the the bach partita or whatever it would it would emerge and f- like a blossom right i used to think that was good art and now i i don't know i don't know if i agree with that 
maybe because there's just so much content now that it's okay if um, something only, you know, a super catchy chorus only hooks you for a week because there will be a new one next week, right? Well, and I guess maybe maybe when I think about the super catchy chorus thing, I, I don't get tired of it because those ones that are super catchy, I really want to know more about. You know, like I, they do keep unfolding to me because the catchiness of it is is intriguing to me for, in a scientific way. We talk about it at songwriters all the time, like the the Da Vinci perfect three three a minute and twenty second long pop song. Oh, how do you build it as a as a as an illusion? You know, like as a as a uh, uh, there is. There's a lot of talk, I think, among songwriters that one day computers will be able to create perfect pop songs because they're formulaic to such a degree, but they aren't because they're because everyone is magic. And so where the line between songwriter magic and and computer formula is is something we spend a lot of time, I think, so as songwriters thinking about. So I think I would burn out on a chorus like that just but that just means I'm not getting the same emotional hit I used to whereas somebody who's like a student of the form yeah can still find more. Where is the where is the thing about this that got everybody why why did um that song by CeeLo uh I think I'm crazy that why did that song become the absolute anthem of that year, there's not, there's no difference between it and the 30 songs that came out on either side of it, except that it somehow is a perfection of that form. And I mean that, yeah, that song would drive you crazy if you hear it. I mean, it's right there in the title. I mean, magic eye has no such, uh, subtlety. I think, you know, the, 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 the 3d, the 3d image I mean, you can, even though I can study it and see how it's done, it's just the epitome of the single serving. I see so you, you're not missing much. You know, the, you're missing the, out on one good moment in your life of the first time you see the dolphin. And the, I'm going to try to get you there. So explain to me, I mean, like, I feel like the dolphin is the thing I remember most about the magic eye phenomenon. Sometimes it was a unicorn. But that's the thing, right? Dolphins and unicorns. Like, why was it so teenage girl bedroom wall what, what's her name the, tra- the, the trapper keeper uh, artist right uh it was that same time right that was the same it was, era. it was a little later so it's probably influenced by that aesthetic those those kids are now you know teens and college age students the, the right age to get their minds blown by right something weird and new to see i mean these so days it borrows would, from the imagery of their childhoods what would the images be if it was a brand new technology now Gold-plated pistols, or or what would it? Yeah, it depends on your politics, I guess. Yeah, right. It's uh, a <laughs> Confederate flag. <laughs> well, that's the thing. All, all these things are flat. All the most iconic images you can imagine right now are probably kind of flat. Um, the, the iPhone is a terrible uh, magic eye thing. It's just a rect- It's just a flat rectangle. You know it. Right. It doesn't have the kind of undulating curves and immediately a dolphin doesn't look like any other animal. You neither does a unicorn. They all have immediate 3d features that make them jump out as what they are. Cause what you don't want is, Hey, I see it. I don't know what it is. <laughs> like it's gotta be, I see it. And in that same second, 
and it's a shark. What they should have done is make magic eyes of Custer's battlefield. Uh, something everybody would recognize instantly. That's what the kids want. And that concludes Magic Eye, entry 747.PR0425, certificate number 27012, in the omnibus. Futurelings, I upgraded the operating system on my computer, and now in clicking on the Notes app to find my uh, outro for Omnibus, the operating system wants me to go through a whole series of menus. This is not the new outro. The new outro is you describing (laughs) why you're not reading the old outro. Welcoming me to my new operating system and this version of Notes. Uh, But in the unlikely event that your uh, social media still exists, you can find Omnibus Project archived at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, you can find Ken still tweeting hilariously at Ken Jennings, and you can find some small portion of my archive at John Roderick, uh, also on Instagram. Um, you can support our Omnibus program at patreon.com slash omnibusproject, where we have lots of exciting extra uh I mean, extra material, extra content. Us talking about 90s posters for 90 minutes is really only half the omnibus experience. <laughs> right. <laughs> you uh, really want to, if you want a deep dive. <laughs> we have, uh, we have a, 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 a special episode every month uh, that we call the addenda episodes that are available to omnibus Patreon subscribers. We'll also send you actual physical talismans of our show, including signed chick tracks and signed show notes. We just signed a bunch of chick tracks today. Yeah, super fun. Never so, thought that would be my life. <laughs> these are things you can, you know, that are suitable for framing. Uh, so that's the Omnibus Project. Oh, I'm sorry. That's patreon.com slash Omnibus Project. So please go there and support the show. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Um, we have fan groups at uh, the uh, under the future links heading on Reddit and Facebook. Um, there's also, um, people commenting on our Patreon posts that kind of almost is a, is like a version of a, a comment page that feels sort of like a, like a message board. A little almost, bit. A little. There's no reason why you couldn't talk to one another in the Patreon comments. You know, you're with a, the, a better class of people. You're at a, both a better class of people is right. Um, you can mail us actual things. At P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. And email us directly at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, where people still had two eyes, we have no idea how long our stereoscopic civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon... This recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus.